Hello and welcome to Oberta Dicta, a podcast by Bloomsbury Professional Ireland. Each episode, we interview one of Ireland's leading legal professionals on their areas of interest and expertise and how these are informing our current headlines. We also deliver a summary of Bloomsbury Professional Ireland's latest updates across its online services and blog. Your hosts for this podcast are myself, Rachel Sherlock, the Marketing Executive for Bloomsbury Professional Ireland and General Literature Enthusiast. And me, Owen Malloy, a graduate of NUI Galway School of Law and FE1 survivor. I now work as Bloomsbury Professional Ireland's Content Editor, with a particular focus on our online services. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy our podcast. Hello and welcome to Oberta Dicta. In this episode, we will be interviewing family law practitioner Keith Walsh about the ways that the coronavirus and social distancing measures have impacted family law. Before we dive into the interview, we have a few points we'd like to bring to your attention. Firstly, we are delighted to announce that our book distributors are back open. As they are still operating under government restrictions, some orders may take longer to process than usual. Nevertheless, we are happy to be offering hard copy editions of our books again. You can order our titles via our website, www.bloomsbyprofessional.com. Secondly, last week we announced the winner of our student essay competition, Kate Flood. For her winning essay, which was chosen by our judge, Professor John Wiley, Kate has received a €750 Bloomsbury Professional voucher. You can read her winning essay on our blog, and you can find the link to it on our Twitter feed, at Bloomsbury IRE. We're also delighted to announce that Kate, who is a second year student at Trinity College Dublin, will be joining us for an episode of the Obiter Dicta podcast next week for a discussion on her essay, as well as the experience of taking exams remotely. And now, without further ado, our interview with Keith Walsh. So a very big welcome back to all of our listeners. This is episode seven of Obiter Dicta. We are joined today by Keith Walsh, solicitor and author of Divorce and Judicial Separation Proceedings in the Circuit Court, a guide to Order 59. Keith is also the author of our brand new online family law update, which is available to online subscribers. Now, Keith, you're very welcome to the show. The last time we saw you was back in January at the launch of your book. Little did we know what was going to unfold in the intervening months, but here we are. As we enter the second month of lockdown, I suppose... How are you finding it all and has much changed for you in your practice? Yeah, we've we've seen huge changes in the last uh, number of weeks um, to both the practice and uh, everyone's individual lives. And uh, hopefully everyone listening to this is keeping safe and healthy, which is the most important thing. And uh, uh, secondarily, I suppose, um, how the, the, the business of law and, and family law in particular has changed over the last number of weeks is very uh, significant. And there's a couple of themes running through it. I suppose the first theme is the lack of access to the courts for any type of family law application except emergency applications. Um, Another theme is that each court jurisdiction, uh, and in particular the district court and the circuit court, which handle most of the family law business, and the high court, which is the kind of bigger money and child abduction end of things, have each decided in their wisdom to uh, deal with the um, COVID-19 crisis in in a slightly different way. Um, and I suppose another theme is technology and the um, remote or virtual uh, trials of the courts, practitioners uh, in family law and in many other cases and many businesses using Zoom and other online platforms to try and deal with progressing uh, cases behind closed doors. Um, and then I suppose there's the, the slight confusion for clients as to 
what what happens during COVID-19. And there's been a great response from the Family Lawyers Association, from the Law Society, from the court service and from uh, lawyers in private practice on their own websites to really get an awful lot of information out there. And again, this obviously the Obert Edicta uh, series and the family law update, which we're going to be doing in relation to, to COVID-19 is all part of that. But so so you can see there's, there's quite a lot happening. And I think people have this change has been thrust upon us and we, we really have to deal with it as best we can. I suppose family law uh, solicitors and barristers have have seen the change in in a very similar way to other people in that one day we, we thought we were proceeding as normal. I, I had a case, I think, that ran up until just before St. Patrick's Day in the in the High Court. And then the next, uh, within a couple of days, everything was shut down and uh, there was only very limited access to the court. So I suppose, first of all, is just dealing with the, the initial shock of that for the clients and, and for the practitioners. And then realising, I suppose, the priority was to ensure that people were safe and then also to to think well how how, how do we go forward uh, to try and do some business um and i suppose maybe just to go through the the various courts and to let you know where where each of them are currently at uh, the district court which is i suppose the lowest jurisdiction but the one which deals with uh, numerically the, the the highest volume by a number of times any other court in in terms of applications for family law primarily the district court is the court where all domestic violence is dealt with uh, almost all bar a tiny percentage uh, and it also deals generally with the the law of the non-marital family uh, it deals with some marital family things like access maintenance and guardianship but generally it's the non-marital family that will find itself there and from a socio-economic point of view and um, people who generally end up in the district court are in the, the lower socio-economic groups so the low, of lower income um, and they don't always have the means to, to proceed. So a lot of people represent themselves. There's a huge reliance on, on legal aid in the district court. Um, and also the, the, the clients who would be in the district court in family law tend to be a little bit more vulnerable as a result of that and, and other factors. So um, the district court is a really important court. And we've a relatively new president of the district court, uh, Colin Daly, who took over from Judge uh, Rosemary Horgan, who's now a judge of the circuit court. She was a, a very innovative uh, district court president. And Colin Daly has followed in her footsteps and, and, and progressed it even further. So he's he's prioritised the most urgent cases to go ahead, such as any domestic violence uh, applications. Uh, we have a new Domestic Violence Act uh, from the 1st of January of last year. Um, we have uh, a new type of order that you couldn't get um, before the, the new Domestic Violence Act, which is called an emergency order. And that allows somebody to be uh, removed uh, from the house, even if they have a greater economic in interest in the house uh, than the applicant um, uh, has. And again, one of the difficulties with that type of order previously was that there was a view that it would be unconstitutional uh, to grant a barring order unless the person had an equal uh, beneficial interest in the property from which the person was going to be barred. So they've got around that with an emergency or very short term emergency barring order. Um, I, I've had cases even since the beginning of COVID-19, which we've successfully defended on the basis that I would have been for the person, the respondent. So the, the applicant wouldn't have had the same beneficial interest as the respondent. So the interim barring order uh, shouldn't have been granted. It wasn't a particular case. And then the, the actual barring order when it came for full hearing was struck out, not on the basis that there wasn't any grounds from the uh, domestic violence aspect, um, because that didn't get heard. 
but on the basis that uh, it didn't qualify because the person didn't have the beneficial interest. So having that emergency barring order as a tool for people in COVID-19, I think is 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 very helpful because it allows people to be taken out of a, a very serious domestic violence situation and uh, to uh, to have a couple of days breathing space but then thereafter they they obviously you can't apply for a second one so when when the 10 days are up you you immediately um you you're going to have to vacate the house or, or else be there and again if it's a genuine case which most of them are you're not going to be in the house you're going to have to secure alternative accommodation so it's quite extremely difficult situation but at least that remedy is there which wouldn't have been there and i think there's been a huge amount of press coverage um highlighting the difficulties uh, during covid19 of people where their relationship is in difficulty or there are uh, issues in the relationship continuing to cohabit together during this and while i think we all one of the things that everybody realizes is that work is a safety valve for for everyone to to escape from the family home or or to leave it and to come back and that if if you are even the best relationship in the world where you're in the same house and there is no diversion or there's very little happening or you're both working from home may may put an additional pressure so i think as a, a direct result of covid-19 there is obviously more strain on families relationships between parents and there's more strain then on children who are, if you like, every most people are, are into, certainly in family law, the, there are very few victims who aren't innocent, but, but the children are certainly the most innocent victims of that. And the difficulty, I suppose, is, is the re- relief valve for children that they're not going out to school, that they're there at home all day witnessing what's happening with their parents. And that, so that the emergency uh, relief that's available in the district court, which would deal with an awful lot of, of access and maintenance matters, isn't really available unless there's domestic violence. So there's a very, if you like, it'd be like a hospital where there's only the most acute remedies available. So there's quite a lot of access problems uh, in COVID, which normally yeah. would have been dealt with in the district court. And that that access to the district court isn't currently available. Now, Colin Daly, the president, has said, look, come and make your case if it's a very urgent matter and I'll see what I can do. But my understanding is currently it's mainly the domestic violence element. So that's where the guidelines come in. So uh, the Family Lawyers Association, uh, which is an association for solicitors and barristers who practice uh, mainly in the area of family law, which is headed up by a senior counsel, Nula Jackson, and has the involvement of both barristers and, and, and solicitors on their committee, and it, it have, uh, would represent most of family lawyers in Ireland, and the Family Law Committee of the Law Society of Ireland, which is chaired by uh, Helen Coughlin, who's a solicitor with PJ Farrell in Newbridge. They've come up with, each of them have come up with a set of guidelines which which are very similar. But, and it's the essential theme of those guidelines or the main message is COVID-19 is not to be used as an excuse to deny access to uh, fathers. And it's not a blanket reason to, to refuse access. The health and safety, obviously, of everybody involved, including potentially elderly grandparents, is very important. But the most important thing is uh, the best interests of the child. And it's almost always in a child's best interest to see their parents unless there's some fairly serious health and safety issues. If you like, Skype and Zoom and uh, technology has always been used in uh, access cases. It's been a feature in access for a long time, much longer than it has been in many other areas of the courts, and it's been recognised as a way of exercising access. But it's still the court's view and, and legal practitioner's view that the best type of access is in person. So if at all possible, that's what should happen. The regulations 
uh, published by the HSE, uh, which were part of the uh, the Health Act of 1947, which limit freedom of movement, which are fairly serious constitutional uh, restrictions. And again, these will be covered in the Bloomsbury update. They uh, specifically permit uh, people who are traveling to exercise access in most situations to travel uh, in spite of the restrictions. Incidentally, legal practitioners are allowed to, to, to work and to travel to and from their offices, are, as are a number of financial uh, accountants and practitioners as well. So um, when, when you look at the law and you, you actually drill down into it, you can see that there are quite a number of, I suppose, exceptions to uh, the restriction on travel. Now, I, I just heard this morning that, unfortunately, the restrictions are going to be extended for, for a bit longer. So we're all going to have to have to deal with that. But so it's very important that the government has recognised uh, the importance of access and the importance for children and again, access is a right for the child, it's not a right for the parent, but the importance for children to continue to see their parents. So if you like, that's kind of the looking at it from the district court aspect and looking at access. Again, another problem that's been highlighted is maintenance. Uh, that um, first of all, there's the economic fallout and people aren't in a position to comply with maintenance orders. Um, and then there are people who are maybe taking advantage and not paying maintenance. Uh, but the ultimate result on the, on the child or the, the mother or the person who was dependent on maintenance is they now have less money than they had. And again, maintenance isn't for extras. It's for necessities. It's towards food. It's towards clothing. It's towards school books. It's towards accommodation. So unfortunately, those types of acute cases just simply can't get back into court. And an example of one that I have is where somebody was ordered to pay maintenance in December and... Um, they, they paid some maintenance then and they're not in compliance with the order. And if it's a particular type of case in the circuit court, you can issue a summons for attachment and committal, which is very draconian, but it's kind of a very serious step. But I, I can only serve that uh, by personal service, which is creating a difficulty. And also the dates that the circuit court, as opposed to the district court, are given out uh, would be in November 2020. So it, in a sense, it's, it's a kind of a disincentive. You're saying that, um, so obviously there's there's a very harsh new economic reality out there for, I would say, almost half half of the workforce seem to have their economic interests impacted in some way. I think I read that 591,000 people are now on the, the COVID unemployment uh, benefit payment. So I suppose the issue of maintenance is, is bound to come up. And, and as you said there, have there been issues, like you said, in, say, applying for a maintenance order uh, recourse that maybe isn't being complied with? Um, are there difficulties around that? Yeah, there's substantial difficulties about enforcement of maintenance. So you may have your maintenance order, which says that the father of your child has to pay €100 Euros a week. Uh, but if he simply doesn't have the money, he's not going to pay it. Uh, if he was on a salary of €600 Euros a week and he's now on the 350 COVID payment, um, he has to pay his rent and other things. So, so there, there are serious issues about that. But the district court, which is the principal court for maintenance in those circumstances, will probably be dealt with, uh, isn't really allowing people to go in to apply to enforce your maintenance. And how you do that is you'd issue a summons and you get a court date and you'd work out what the amount of the arrears are up to the date of of the court date and then a judge would make that order and would then you would probably get what's called an attachment of earnings which means that the earnings the the maintenance might be deducted at source when the person is employed and um, but equally the the person who's due to pay the maintenance 
and who can't pay it would normally go back to court immediately to vary the maintenance order on the basis that, look, there's been a change in circumstances. And this really is probably the most drastic change in circumstance we've we've ever seen in, in my lifetime. It's completely different to 2008 um, or even just post-2001 where there was a bit of a dip as well. So um, so that's the difficulty. The, I think the access to justice in terms of maintenance and that's more an economic justice, but it's really important. Uh, and again, you could have children going hungry, mothers of children going hungry, sacrifices being made, um, uh, partly created by the poverty. I don't want to blame the fathers who can't pay the maintenance. I think it's people who are using this who, who could pay, but who won't pay. So the difficulty is there's no current remedy. So I know the Law Society and the Family Lawyers Association uh, and the Bar Council have strongly lobbied the government to say, look, we need to broaden out our definition of emergency issues. We need to broaden it out for acute access issues, uh, and particularly abuse of, of, of access and acute maintenance issues where, where pe- people, again, where there's genuine hardship and we need to allow people to come in to enforce the maintenance. The problem is if you think you can get away with something, you're going to do that. I think the variation of the maintenance is probably less serious because... I think it's what should be done, but it, it it's not as acute an issue. And then maybe some, uh, th- there could be other other issues where people haven't haven't seen children. You can apply to the district court to produce the children and and, and other issues. Uh, so, um, but at the minute there's a, there's a, a, quite a number of domestic violence uh, applications before the district court. I, I couldn't get the statistics. Uh, but I'm going to try and get them for for the update and to see how much of a surge there has been in domestic violence applications in the district court on, on a monthly basis. Because we really, well, it seems like we've been in this for quite a while. It still is, is less than, than two months, which is relatively short considering the, the, the huge changes that have, have, have occurred. Uh, in terms of the circuit court then, if you like, the jurisdiction, the circuit court generally deals with judicial separation and divorce. Um, and obviously that would be for married people. Um, so the president of the circuit court issued a direction uh, a short number of weeks ago in which President uh, Patricia Ryan, who is the, the president, said that there will be no circuit family court cases in the circuit court until the beginning of the final term, uh, which is the Trinity term, which starts on the 10th of June. Um, uh, now, the current uh, term, which is the Easter term, began on the 20th of April and uh, will finish uh, towards the end of May. So that means that there will be no cases, uh, bar urgent or emergency ones, in the circuit court, which really would be on a similar basis to the district court, except the, the reality is there are almost never any cases in the in, for domestic violence in the circuit court, uh, unless they're related to divorce or separation. So there isn't a huge amount happening in the circuit court uh, but urgent cases, if if a case can be made that it's urgent on a slightly broader level, maybe than the district, you probably would get in. Um, so I can't see that being relaxed before the 10th of June, given the change today. So it means that if you want to get divorced or separated, you're unlikely to get before a court. Uh, an example where you may be able to get divorced or separated if you're nearly there anyway, or you had a date that, that you've lost is, for example, if there's an issue of illness, that will always be given priority. But one of the two people is is unwell or, or seriously unwell, I, I would imagine that the judges will, will, will see you immediately. Um, if there's a, a case of, of age, if you're, if you're quite old, I think... Um, 
I think you'd get you'd get that immediately, if, particularly if there's no uh, already no judicial separation in place, and and that you've lived a long distance time apart. You, you might get that. So there there is some small amount, and there is a kind of a duty to judge in the circuit family court. Uh, Judge uh, Nihulakon was a very experienced judge who's sitting there, and they're also dealing with pension adjustment orders, um, mm. uh, which formerly had to appear to to have them ruled, and now they're they're ruling them by the judge reading the papers. And if the papers are in order, uh, they're they're going to be dealt with. Um, I was also part of a remote or virtual court uh, experiment, uh, which the court service organised, which um, was uh, two uh, applications before uh, a circuit court judge with solicitors and barristers, just to see how the remote uh, court experiment worked. And my understanding is that that was rolled out uh, throughout the courts in all court jurisdictions. Yeah, in our last episode, we spoke with Stephen Spear a little bit about this. And I was wondering if we could just get your opinion on, do you think that online justice will become a new normal? Is this something that we'll be adopting further going forward? I, I suppose I I probably don't think so in Dublin Circuit Court at the minute in the family law area. Um, I, I do think it is probably more suited to cases where there are no witnesses and there's extensive reliance on the papers. So, for example, the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court, which uh, really are not courts that uh, hear evidence, I think those courts are far more likely to uh, to adopt it and in some ways are, are, are more suited for it. It, it. The difficulty, one of the, the great difficulties is actually justice being done in public and being seen to be done in public, that I think the technology needs to come up with a way uh, to permit uh, observers to come in and, and to watch the cases just as you can stroll into the Supreme Court or the Court of Appeal um, as an observer and probably more importantly uh, as a journalist um, uh, to see what's happening. So I, I think that, that would be a big issue. I think the investment that would be required to ensure that the technology is open to everyone and it's not just the larger firms or those with deeper pockets uh, that th- there certainly has to be a cost, and I think it's it's a resource issue. And if the cost is going to be passed on to the um, the court user, how would that be done? And again, I th- there's, there was a number of cases in England in the late nineties where they increased, I think, stamp duty on uh, court documents, and there was a finding that it, it, it reduced access to justice, and, and and there were issues about that. So I, I think. I think it needs to be teased out, but I think the debate has accelerated in the, in the last two months more than it had in the previous ten years. So I, I do I do think so. I mean, I, I went to a court in in America in in Rhode Island, I think, about twelve or fourteen years ago, and um, that court was conducted using electronic documentation on a screen and. Um, that seemed light years ahead of us then, and our courts haven't really noticeably changed since then. So I think there is a bit of change. I think the difficulty, and, and certainly in the in the pilot, that I did a pilot with the court service on the, on the circuit court, and I also did a remote hearing organised by the Family Lawyers Association. I was part of both of those. And in both of them, one of the problems was the limitations of technology and depending where people were. Another one was to ensure that the witness was not reading from notes was was not there with somebody else again in family law there are particular issues like the in-camera rule which is obviously the complete opposite to the, the concerns you have about the hearing in public but i think generally i'd have a concern about cross-examination of witnesses and ensuring that witnesses are, are completely away i think there's a 
an effect that going into a court building and sitting in the witness box on your own in front of a number of people has. And I do think it's our, our court system is based on an ultimate judgment on credibility of witnesses. And I, I suppose that's my big concern in live cases. Um, another issue, I suppose, is is in the Constitution. It says that um, the judge has to be satisfied proper provision is, is taking place uh, before they grant a decree of divorce and similarly for a decree of judicial separation. So that the courts have interpreted that, that the, the um, applicant has to get into the witness box and give evidence, but they also have to give evidence uh, to make sure that the, the marriage is broken down for the period now of two years. So I, I think that would cause more concern to the judiciary than it would to practitioners. I think practitioners would say, well, maybe that could be done in affidavit. But I do think it's very important. There's some sort of hearing for the end of the marriage, um, particularly if it's contested. But I, I, I certainly think any contested matter is is going to have difficulty um, uh, being heard. And then I think the district court, the difficulty is that the time taken to set up uh, a remote access uh, is probably, it's much easier to get people to come to you rather than to set up the remote access every time and, and to get people in and out. And I think the actual, if you like, the foyer element of people coming in and out of the courts is much easier to do in, in public. So I think where you have any volume of cases, um, it makes much more sense from the court service, not necessarily from the user's point of view, but from the court service point of view to, to get people to the courts, get them in and get them out. And again, for shorter applications, whereas you might think, well, shorter applications would lend themselves to remote technology. So, look, I think it's a, we're, we're in the middle of a debate about it. And um, I think that's a good thing. And, and hopefully if we can kind of blend the two of them, we'll get a better system. And yeah, like you said, it's the, the coronavirus crisis has been a massive catalyst for change in, in some sense in terms of accelerating our move towards online and working from home and, and those kind of things. So I suppose online learning is something that you've been involved with yourself in delivering webinars to the Law Society. Do you think maybe that this is the way forward or would you say that students might be perhaps missing out on something by not being physically present in, in the lecture theatre? Yeah, I mean, I suppose what I would do is differentiate between the recorded online lecture and the live one. Um, I, I, I've had experience in both. I suppose the Law Society, I've, I've recorded three or four because I also do their mental health uh, lecture as well, as well as the family law ones. And uh, they're quite difficult to do when they're recorded because, you know, it could be eight o'clock in the morning, you're doing it and you've, you've written the paper and you're ready to go. Um, whereas the webinar with the chat facility and with maybe other people, you get a much greater sense of uh, questions and answers and interaction. And I, I think, I certainly think a combination of that uh, um, would be good that if you could, you know, and also I, I found when you do any kind of um, family law or mental health and particularly family law lectures to students, that there are always questions and there's always interest in some area or another. And th again, that that's quite good. And, and people sometimes stop you and, and, and want to have a chat about a particular case. Um, I think it's it's an option. And again, I suppose one of the, the obvious issues with legal education at any level is the cost involved. And I mean, if it, if it, if it can help to reduce the costs, it, it could be a case of the best is the enemy of the good. We would like to, to get people down here and we would like them to, um, uh, to speak. But if, if, if it's cheaper to, to do some that have to be done in person and tutorials and other ones by webinar, maybe, maybe they should be done. But, it, I, I, my own view is it probably isn't. It certainly, 
when I was doing the webinar yesterday, I thought from a participant, from a, a speaker point of view, it's 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 definitely harder than being there and actually getting the kind of camaraderie and getting a bit of a lift from from the people who were there. Whereas from a, when I was watching other people, I actually found and, and my experience talking to other colleagues who watched it that. It, it, in some ways, it's it's a lot better for the the person who's watching it um, uh, than than the live one. In some cases, which I wouldn't have thought would be the case myself, so I I would be far more open to um, attending webinars and and virtual learning than I previously would be. And um, if it's an interesting speaker at all, and the other thing is, I, I was talking to somebody in the, the the webinar yesterday was meant to be in Kilkenny. And they got a multiple of the, the number of people who would normally have been at it, but also people who said they would never go to Kilkenny, but they were delighted they were able to see it. So I think, there's again, there's an access issue that, you, you know, and maybe a combination so that you would maybe have a live lecture that people could go to or whatever, but it's also available as a webinar. So I think I, I think maybe we might need to get away from saying it has to be um, one way or another. I think what we're learning is, in actual fact, we all need to be an awful lot more flexible about how we create content and, and how we digest it, if you like. Um, uh, so I think that's that's a plus for, for my learning experience from this, you know. Well, thanks very much for coming in to take the time to, or coming in virtually to take the time to talk to us, Keith. It's been a pleasure having you on episode seven of Obiter Dicta, and we look forward to reading your online updates over the coming months. Th thanks very much, Owen, Rachel. Thank you. See you. Thank Bye. you. This has been Oberta Dicta, a Bloomsbury Professional Ireland podcast. To find out more about our titles and online services, visit bloomsburyprofessionalireland.com. You can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. Thanks for listening.